one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. Good morning. Like Dr. Robinson said, uh, my name is Corey Shirey, and I am the executive director and campus minister at the Wesley Foundation at Southwestern Oklahoma State in Weatherford. That is one of your 15 United Methodist campus ministries across our conference. Back when I was in second grade, I got into an argument with a classmate of mine over which was longer, an inch or a foot. I lost that argument. I swore that an inch was longer than a foot, but seven-year-old me didn't quite know better. And I was kind of surprised that I remembered that story um, because it has hung with me all of these years since then. Uh, That was back in 2002, 2003, so about 20 years ago now. And that story, that piece of embarrassment, that loss of an argument has followed me all these years. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that there are some nights where I will wake up at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and that argument still pops up in the back of my head. Going, how in the world could you have been so dumb, even in second grade, to think an inch is longer than a mile? And I mean, we got heated in that argument, too. I mean, we were dragging our fathers into this argument. We said, we'll, we'll go get our dad. I'll get my dad. You get your dad. They'll, they'll prove. They'll fight on the playground for us. It's hung with me all these years. And like I said, I still wake up in the middle of the night hanging over it because I've, I've found myself latching on to that little piece of embarrassment. That's not the only story, the only time in my life where... I have found some embarrassment that just seems to follow me. And I doubt that my classmate remembers that argument. Um, Again, it was 20 years ago. Preston and I haven't spoken in years. So I really doubt he remembers that. But I do because of how it made me feel. 
So being at the Wesley, working with college students, I spend a lot of time working with brand new college freshmen, first generation college students. This is their first time that they've ever left home, the first time they've ever known anything outside of mom or dad or some other primary guardian taking care of them, of having a structured schedule of you will show up to high school by 8 a.m. and you get out at 3.30, unless you're an athlete, then you get out 5, 6, 7 o'clock that evening. And that's the same way Monday through Friday college, a lot less structured, a lot more freedom, a lot more opportunity to do dumb things. And so I, I'm, I'm working with a lot of freshmen, but on the other side of that, I'm also working with a lot of seniors who are now graduating or face, about to graduate, looking at this other new chapter in their lives, moving on into the world outside of education, getting their first real adult job, starting lives of their own, getting married, having kids, moving, buying their own house. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic that I work in, and I love it. But one of the things that I have found from freshmen through seniors, graduate students, even a couple of doctorates that are a part of the Wesley, is they really understand the primary focus of loving God, and they really understand the focus of loving their neighbor, of taking care of those in their community around them, even those that they may not normally associate with. Um, one of the things I'm really proud of this, Wesley, and they've had this attitude long before I got there, is this attitude of mission and service. They have partnered for probably the last 10 years with the Indian Missionary, uh, the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Church uh, mission in Clinton. And they've done tutoring with them, they've done food baskets, they've taught children's moments, they've done a lot with this Indian Mission Church. And uh, they do a lot of work in Weatherford with the community food pantry, with the food resource center, they do work on campus. I mean, this, this Wesley, is part of their DNA is to serve and to love their neighbors and their communities. But in this first year, I just finished my first year being there, I've noticed that there is this lack of understanding of the second part of that second greatest commandment. See, we, we get stuck on that first part of loving your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love God, love others. Love God, love people. But that wasn't the end of it. It wasn't just love your neighbor. It was to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a double-edged commandment. It was to love people and to love yourself. It's an understanding in that commandment that you can't love others, you can't love your neighbor, you can't love all of these other people unless you have an understanding of what it means to love yourself. And so this entire last year, I've been working with these students to figure out for them what it means, or to figure out with them what it means for these students to love themselves as they're starting this new life of properly caring for themselves, of showing themselves some grace, some mercy, some forgiveness, to not get hung up on the second grade embarrassing story of, is an inch longer than a foot? And to talk about self-care and to self-love. Now, I don't want to drag um, too hard any of my other brothers and sisters in Christ from other traditions through the mud too much. Um, but I do want to say this. I did not grow up a, a United Methodist. 
Um, I am not a cradle United Methodist. Neither of my parents were born United Methodist. And going back generations, we had no real connection with Methodism. We were Baptists. And we were Pentecostals. My father's and sire's side of the family is Baptist, probably going back all the way to John the Baptist. And my mom's side is really charismatic Pentecostal, uh, Church of God, Tennessee, uh, specifically. These, their, their churches, I remember being real little when we still lived in Texas up until I was four or five. Um, this church we went to, the Church of God of Shamrock, this church was the kind of Pentecostal church where people were running up and down the aisles with tambourines and worship, and it's just a very charismatic church. And then uh, my dad, like I said, his entire side of the family is very Baptist. Um, and so we, we did a lot of church hopping growing up once we moved to Oklahoma. We didn't quite find that place that we could f- call our, our church home. And there was one particular church, I won't say the name, um, but this independent Baptist church, it wasn't a part of the Southern Baptist Commission. They were an independent Baptist church. Um, they, I've, I started going to that church because a friend of mine had gone there. His grandparents had gone there. His parents had gone there. Three or four generations have been a part of this 110-year-old church. So I said, sure, I'll come to church with you. I don't, I don't go to church. I was 12 or 13. And I really loved youth, really loved hanging out with other kids my age on Sunday mornings, evenings, and Wednesday evenings. Really found a good community there. But there was a thing I didn't like about it. Nothing to do with the youth group. The youth pastor was great. Loved him. Fantastic. It came on Sunday mornings for the sermon. I never left church feeling good about myself. I never left church thinking, I'm doing good. I'm doing all right. I'm living life how I'm supposed to. I'm I'm walking the path that I'm supposed to, that God loves me, and I'm doing okay. No, I I actually ended up leaving church feeling pretty bad most Sundays, going, oh God, he hates me, or we hate each other, or we are just terrible, terrible, awful people. We've fallen so far from grace that there's just no, no getting back there. It was a hard place to find myself, especially at 12, 13, 14 years old. These really foundational, fundamental years. These years really do shape your mindset of how you're going to approach middle school, high school, and even heading off into college for the first time. And that's what I was facing with a lot of these students. Most of my students didn't grow up Methodist. Most of my students aren't cradle United Methodist. Most of them don't even attend United Methodist churches on Sunday mornings. But they are a part of the Wesley when it comes to our small groups, our Bible studies, our Tuesday night worship, our Thursday free lunches, which is a huge hit because college, free food, of course. It's this feeling of I'm not good enough. I have been told every Sunday morning since I was born just about that everything I have done has been wrong. How I live my life, how I think, how I talk. It doesn't measure up. And I've really struggled with, okay, how do I teach these students to love God and to love people if they don't even have an understanding of what it means to actually love themselves? 
if they're always thinking that they are dragging themselves through the mud, if they always have this mindset that they are less than, that they are not who God made them to be exactly as they are in this moment, how can I convince them or show them to love others? And not just the surface level love of you know, going and tutoring an elementary school student or holding the door open for somebody behind you when you're going into a restaurant or giving up your seat on a crowded bus. The, how do I teach them to totally transform their entire being, their heart, their mindset, their entire lives to just being love? Because that's who we're called to be as Christians, is when we begin to follow Christ on this path towards perfection, our actions begin to just reverberate how Christ has called us to be. That, that is what we are called to do, is to be like Christ. And this path to perfection, this path to be as Christ, these, these actions, this mindset, this love just begins to naturally flow from us. And I found from August to November, my first four months there, I couldn't do it. Or three months there, I couldn't do it. Could not convince them. Couldn't say you have to love others because you love yourself. Because most of the students didn't. They didn't love themselves. And so we had to start from the very basics, starting at Christmas. We, we started the first week of December, those last two weeks that I had them in school, and we started this new lesson, this new series, this new, I don't know, curriculum, I guess is the boring word to use, but this new study on what it means to love. And so we started with, what does it mean to love God? And of course, they gave the basic Sunday school answers. Well, go to church, read your Bible, pray, worship. You know, every children's Sunday school answer like this morning, who do you love? Jesus. And it was all surface level stuff. It's a place to start. So we grew from there. Figured out that loving God is more than just attending. It's more than just a series of check boxes on a list. It's more than a to-do list. So we got through that by about the end of January, beginning of February, which opened a great opportunity with Valentine's Day, talking about loving others. And so we started talking about what does it mean to love others. And we started talking about how when we really do begin to follow Christ, that this love of others just begins to flow, just naturally, just comes, comes out of us. And then it was after spring break where we started talking about what does it mean to love yourself. And they really struggled with it. They really did. They said, how can I love myself? If I am a sinner, if I live in this constant state of a fallen world, how can I love myself? And so we took everything we learned from the fall or from Christmas, January, February, and March, and we combined it all together and we said, this is how. One, because Jesus said to. It's not an option. It's not a request. It's not, a, uh, it's not a, a piece of worship that we could go without one Sunday. It's not a piece that we can just adapt and change. We are commanded to love ourselves. And that was really hard for them to wrap their minds around. Um, and so I, a friend of mine who uh, is an attorney, practices law, reads into the law trying to find the loophole. He's a, he's a defense attorney, uh, and so he tries to find the, the best way out for his client. I brought him in um, to, to go through this because we had some very textual students. Again, 
Most of them are not Methodist. Most of them come from more conservative or traditional. Um, I don't like that word. More strict, strict traditions in, in our faith. And so he went with them and, and broke down those two greatest commandments and gave a legal interpretation of them. And that, that lit a light bulb in some of them. It did. And so we, they broke down the as yourself part. And so it broke a door open for them. And so we started talking about, okay, if this love naturally flows towards others, how can we get this love to naturally flow towards ourselves? And so we went to one of those chapters in the Bible that we hear at most weddings. And it was 1 Corinthians 13. Where it says, if you give me just a second. You've all heard it before. That love is patient, that love is kind, it doesn't envy, it's not boastful or arrogant, it's not rude or self-seeking, it's not irritable, and it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and that it never ends. When we started this study with the students on what does it mean to love yourself, I asked them, hey, is there a story, is there a moment in your life that kind of just keeps you up at night, that sometimes you find yourself daydreaming or you wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and it hits you? And some of them said, no, never. Some of them said, jumped at it and said, absolutely. And I was one of those that jumped at it, absolutely. And I said, second grade. The inch versus the foot. Because I was wrong. I was embarrassed. And I'd hung that on myself going, good Lord, what if I do that in front of a church someday? What if I do that with a student someday? Or if I'm serving as a senior pastor of a church someday, what if I do that with a church member? Just get into one of those really embarrassing, tough fights where I am absolutely wrong. And so we talked about that. And we said, what does it mean to be patient with yourself? We talk about what does it mean to be patient with others. Every parent or grandparent in the room knows what it means to be patient. I mean, I, at least I know my mom, God bless that woman, raised three boys. Me and then two identical twins that were five years younger than me. She knew what it meant to be patient. My great-grandmother, my mama, lived to be 98 years old raised 14 children. She knew what it meant to be patient. When she died, she had four, or 11 of her 14 children still alive. I think it was 29, 30, high 20s, low 30s, amount of grandkids and about seven great-grandkids. That woman knew what it meant to be patient. Teachers know what it means to be patient. Doctors and nurses, we expect to know how to be patient. And most of my students are pharmacists, pharmacy students or nursing students because Southwestern's a huge pharmacy and nursing school. And so they're learning in the classroom what it means to be patient, to have patient care. What does it mean to be kind? We teach kids at an early age, this is what it means to be kind. Sharing is caring. We know what it means to be kind. It doesn't envy and it's not boastful. We don't want to get hung up on the, my neighbor has this really nice thing, so I want it too. 
That's a little harder to do. Again, it goes back to the sharing is caring. But to kind of be happy with what we have. My mom and my dad taught me to just living within your means, not be the Joneses, to just be happy with what you got. To not be arrogant or rude. That was, was a little tough for my students to, to hear. In college, in this pharmacy program, I love the pharmacy program at Southwestern, first off. I want to say that. Love it. One of the things I don't love is they do the class ranking system. A couple of their professors like to do a little bit of competition in the classroom, which is okay to an extent. I mean, I can see how sometimes it does better students to say, I can, I can do better or I should do better. But sometimes some of these students who do get the top three or four spots in the class ranking or on the midterm or final, they get a little too big-headed for themselves. And I'm guilty of this too. Uh, I have a, tend to have an ego the size of Mount Everest some days and think that I'm a little better than I am. Or at least better than other people in my same position. It's not irritable or keeps a record of wrongs. I learned this from my parents' divorce. The, well, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. So we learned about not keeping a record of wrong with others. That's where I got hung up, was keeping that record of wrongs with myself. And I didn't realize I was doing it until I was doing this study with our students. And when we got to that and we spent a week talking about what does it mean to keep a record of wrongs, we started talking about those embarrassing stories we get hung up on, and not the stories that we just laugh at looking back now, but the things that do wake us up, that do stay in the back of our minds of the regret of, how could I say that? How could I have held that position? Why did I do that? And when we talked about it that way, when we framed it in that way, every single one of our students said, yeah, I've got one of those. So sibling, another student, a professor or teacher, their parent, a friend. They all held on to those stories and found themselves at some point going, man, I was real dumb. I was real wrong. And then we talked about Love bearing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. Uh, this last year, we had two of our students uh, who had been a part of the Wesley for several years. We got married a couple of years ago before I got there, and they started having some trouble this year. Um, and I'm sad to say that it has ended in a separation and will lead to a divorce, but going through this last year with them, being my students, talking with them, just trying to love on them, to try to guide them gracefully through this process in a Christian mind, it was a little rough for me, but also for their friends, the other students at the Wesley. Because as much as we like to say we don't want to do it, people began taking sides. They've been friends with both of these students for a long time, and they began drawing the lines in the sand and taking sides. 
And so it hit just at the right opportune moment when we started talking about this love, this bearing all things, this enduring all things of what does it mean to love yourself through this fight. Because both of these individuals going through the separation began to find some self-hatred in themselves, began to hold grudges against themselves going, why did I cause this marriage to go so wrong? Why did I cause this relationship to go so wrong? By the end of the school year, though, even though they had agreed that this marriage wasn't healthy for them and they needed to end, they did end up ending on relatively calm terms. Because they both admitted that they had done wrong, but they weren't being hung up on the wrong. They finally found themselves in a place where they said, I'm not going to hold a grudge against you, and I'm not going to hold a grudge against myself. There have been a lot of people I've crossed paths with in my young life who I have found it just really hard to convince them to love people, to love others. And the reason is because there's some form of a grudge, there's some form of a lack of endurance, a lack of bearing, a holding on to a list of wrongs in their own lives that they simply won't echo love to others because they don't have an echo of love for themselves. So going through this whole study this last year had been really enlightening for the students and for me. I thought I had known what it was to love myself. I would taken care of myself, started going to the gym, started appreciating who I was as a person and my calling to ministry. By the end of May, though, when, or beginning of May, when students went home, I found myself with nothing to do. And I talked to a couple other folks that were going into ministry, and specifically working in campus ministry, and said, what do you do when you got no ministry to do? You have no students there. It's you know, a little different. I've got some friends who are pastors in a normal church setting like this. And every Sunday, you know, you're in the pulpit just about. Every day of the week, you're getting phone calls to pray with people or you're planning mission work. You've got something to do. The list never ends. But at a Wesley Foundation, when the students go home, really all there's to do is physical maintenance to the building and paper planning for the next year. There's not a lot of ministry or, or personal ministry to do. And so I found myself in this place of, I got nothing to do. And it wasn't a nice not having anything to do. It was finding myself in this place of, who am I when I have nothing to do? I found myself beginning to say, I don't love myself with where I'm at and who I'm at in this moment. I've got to have this thing or I don't know who I am. That went on for three weeks before I went to my first church camp. Now, I've worked church camp for about seven, eight years now. Uh, and I've loved every church camp I've gone to. Church camp for me has been the refilling of my cup. Because uh, I'm pouring out throughout the whole school year. I'm you know, in seminary, and so I'm always pouring out to my studies. I've, I find myself, by the time end of May hits, just faith-wise going, okay, I need something to pour into me. And so church camp has been that thing for me. First week of June, go to Clue Camp. Used to be the Clinton, Enid, Woodward 
district camp. Now it's C-L-U-E instead of C-L-E-W uh, when redistricting happened several years ago. Um, basically Western Oklahoma. And for the first time ever, I found myself physically at camp, but not emotionally or spiritually at camp. I was there, but I wasn't there. And I could tell by Tuesday morning of camp that I wasn't there. I said, okay, well, let's put on autopilot. Let's get to work. Let's lead small group. Let's go to worship. Just do it. By the end of that week, I was drained. I was done. I said, I quit. I'm done. I'm not doing church camp ever again. I'm not sure ministry is the thing for me. God, if this is how you're going to make me feel, how you're going to make me feel, I'm not doing it anymore. Third week of June came around and I go to Camp Spark. I'd had a week off in between those two camps where I spent some time on vacation. I spent some time out in the mountains with my dog, just getting a little breather. And I go to Camp Spark and I'm having a conversation with a sixth grader. I don't know if you know anything about sixth graders. They can be a little, uh, what's the word, scatterbrained. Be a little on the annoying side sometimes. They're sixth graders. They're supposed to be. That's who they're meant to be at that point. And this sixth grader enlightened me. Told me one of the most profound statements I had ever heard. I said, how are you so joyful all the time? You you were just telling me in small group about how your grandfather died a month ago, how your grandma's in the hospital sick, how your dog you're probably going to have to put down when you get home. How are you still so joyful right now? And he said, all that stuff's just life stuff. That stuff happens to everybody. Sure, I'm sad about these things. But they happen to everybody. Everybody has these experiences. If I don't have joy for myself, if I can't find fun stuff to do, if I can't have some love for me, who can I have love for? If I can't have some love for me, who can I have love for? And the light bulb struck above my head going, okay, God, I hear you. It's not you. It's me. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to blame you. And so I spent the rest of that week as we're going through church camp trying to look and just watch the students. Watch these middle schoolers and high schoolers and how they interact with one another and how they love themselves. And then last week, just on Friday, I got back from LEAD. Uh, it's a much smaller, it's not a typical church camp. It's a Christian leadership camp within our conference. Um, some of you may have known it as CYME, uh, now as the name LEAD. And I saw these 47 middle schoolers and high schoolers learning how to be Christian leaders and showing and talking about holding themselves to a higher standard. Not holding each other, holding themselves to the standard of loving, of leading on what we called this last week, our theme was rock-solid leadership, Jesus being the firm foundation on which we stand, and the foundation of love that they had for one another. This summer, I learned what it meant to love yourself. To love yourself through a gap of ministry. To love yourself through the embarrassing stories you hold on to. To love yourself through these heartache moments. And I realized this week at LEAD when we're talking about 
things that Christian leaders have to do or need to be. It reminded me that that second greatest commandment is just that. It is a commandment. It's not an option. It is not a checkbox. It's not a to-do list. It is a commandment to love yourself and love others. Because when we don't love ourselves, we cannot bring ourselves to love others, to love our neighbor as Christ expects of us to love. And so my message to you today is this. It's to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 first. To remind yourself what the biblical definition of love is. But then to also take a look at yourself. To look yourself in the mirror and ask the question, do I love myself? Do I love myself? And if not, is it because I'm not patient with myself? Have I not forgiven myself? Am I holding on to the, two, the, the second grade embarrassing story too much? Am I holding a list of wrongs against myself? Am I showing myself grace, mercy, and forgiveness that Christ showed me first? And if your answer is no, try. Try to give yourself some grace. Try to give yourself some mercy. Try to give yourself even just an inch of forgiveness. Because when you take that little step, when you make that small move of showing some grace, some mercy, some hope, and some love to yourself, loving others and loving God will come just that much easier. And all of God's people said, Amen.